0: listeners and welcome to The Gallery Gap, a podcast that examines inequity and equity in museums, exhibitions, collections, and programming. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Claire. And today we're going to shift things up a bit. And in many ways, I'm going to be the guest chatting with Melissa about an exhibition at the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art Galleries that was intentionally brought in to engage the Augustana campus a bit more deeply with issues of racism, poverty, and oppression. So today, in many ways, Melissa is interviewing me, And just a heads up, listeners, this episode contains what I would call some swears, so if you're listening around children, just be forewarned. Thanks, Claire. Always a good warning. Let's dive right
0: in. First, why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about what the exhibition is?
1: Yeah, sure. So the exhibition's called Organize Your Own, the Politics and Poetics of Self-Determination Movements, and it is an exhibition curated by Daniel Tucker, and it is traveling. So it began in Chicago and Philadelphia in 2015. It had two locations. And then Daniel thought that uh, that was going to be the... Well, maybe it would travel a little bit more, but he wasn't really sure. Um, So then some events transpired, like... um, perhaps the election of number 45, and some people, myself included, uh, started reaching out to him interested in the exhibition. So we are actually the first venue of the second leg of this exhibition. And it also has a website, so we will point our listeners to that. But the exhibition itself brings together a number of contemporary artists and artist collectives that are responding to the concept of multiracial coalitions organizing against racism, poverty, oppression, and police brutality. So these artists are thinking about those ideas both in the contemporary moment and in some historical moments. And for our iteration, we're focusing in on what's called the Rainbow Coalition. It's a lot to be thinking about
0: in one exhibition, but you've really done a great job of of situating that at your museum. Can you let us know how long it's on display? How long can people come see it at Augustana? Yeah,
1: yeah, so it's on display until October 28th. And for our listeners who don't know, our galleries are open noon to four, Fridays and Saturday. So you're welcome to stop in and check it out. And we also are open by appointment. The work itself varies in media from photographs to Uh, screen prints to drawings, and then there's some digital media as well as an archival component. Are there any works that stand out to you in particular? Yeah, there's uh, quite a few, but I'll try to focus in on two. The first one is by an artist named Roston Wu, and it's called Visitor Survey. And what I like about this piece is that it's interactive. So gallery visitors are encouraged to basically move through three different questions. And in that process, evaluate for themselves what is important for them, this concept of organizing your own, what's important for them as individuals to organize around. And so they work through these different these different questions, and you put pins in, and then you take pins out and put different pins in for a different color. And so you're answering it, Individually, but then when you take a step back, you can see where our larger community is interested in organizing around, whether those are topics around poverty or topics around healthcare or housing access. There's a variety of different perspectives, and it's really interesting to see how that piece is evolving specific to place. Another work that I think is really interesting is a work by Mary Patton called Words for Today, and this is a series of five pencil drawings, and what Mary has done is she has excerpted different quotes from different authors some a couple of them are quotes from Langston Hughes one of them is a quote from a, a a piece of art criticism about Carol Walker and one of them is is very recent it's about the Dana Schultz painting in the Whitney biennial and what I think is really interesting about these works is number one just the the delicate quality of them they're just they're just paper on the wall and she's taken the time to, to treat each one of these letters as if it's a drawing in and of itself. So it's this this slow process of of creating this text in, in pencil form. So it's not just written out, but I would say that she's actually drawing the letters. And all of the different excerpts are engaging with questions around white appropriation of black culture. So there's a number of different ways that that is approached and at different moments in time, but I think that the work is very contemplative in terms of the the excerpts that she's choosing how they fit into a bigger picture and then this process of drawing that I think is very quiet and powerful so those are uh, particularly interesting and then I'll just round it off by pointing out that we have a lot of archival materials in the exhibition and I like that pairing of the art and then also some some books about the historical period around the Rainbow Coalition and then also some archival Reproductive archival materials focusing on a magazine and uh, for our exhibition site, in particular, the Young Lords organization. So I like that pairing.
0: Well, the work alone is visually intriguing. But you're doing a lot of programming around the show that is not focusing on the art. So do you want to next talk to our listeners about what's going on program wise and why you decided to shift the focus away from the art?
1: Yeah, I think that we should back up a little bit and uh, and connect it to why I thought this exhibition, uh, why I worked to get this exhibition on campus in the first place. Um, for those of you that are familiar, Augustana has a project called Augie Reads where all of the first year students read the same book. Um, and this year it is Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. And um, I started thinking about that book and I wanted to situate the conversations in that book within a broader understanding of Appalachian culture. And then, if I could, try to connect that Appalachian culture to our region a little bit more specifically. So I started thinking about ways that I could do that in an exhibition or through work. And this exhibition and its focus on multiracial coalitions organizing around the issues that I mentioned, racism, poverty, oppression, police brutality, really spoke to me because of this strong focus on the history of coalition politics and multiracial organizing. So when Daniel put together this exhibition he was looking at two examples of this two historic examples of this one in Philadelphia and then the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago and the Rainbow Coalition itself is is an was a was a coalition that was made up of the Illinois Black Panthers party the Young Lords Organization, the Young Patriots, and Rising Up Angry. Earlier, Students for a Democratic Society were also involved. And what I was really interested in is thinking about how this multiracial coalition featured the Young Patriots, which was a group of Appalachian transplants. Appalachians had been moving for quite a while to the uptown neighborhood of Chicago since at least the 1930s. And so this this is a group that came out of that neighborhood and joined with these other groups, realizing that they had a lot of shared... Grievances and shared issues in, in living in Chicago, fighting against their own stereotypes and people's expectations of them, fighting against poverty, fighting for housing access and those sorts of things. So I was thinking about this, thought it was a really nice way to connect the Augie Reads book to this bigger conversation about organizing, Appalachian's history of organizing, and thinking about its connection to our region. And so for me, it was important to really flesh out those connections, and so that's why I thought about the programming being more focused on this idea of organizing and activism and connecting it pretty directly to what was happening in the late 60s and early 70s in Chicago, which I would call our region.
0: So the exhibition's been open for a little over a week. Mm -hmm. Have you already, have you sensed an energy around it from the students on campus, especially those first years?
1: Yeah, I mean we we've had a number of classes come in already and have had some good conversations with those students not only about the Rainbow Coalition but how it connects to Hillbilly Elegy and in some ways problematizes some of the frameworks that the, that Hillbilly Elegy sets up not in some ways definitely does problematize some of the frameworks that Hillbilly Elegy is setting up and um, one thing that I've been really pleased with I mentioned uh, Wu's visitor survey. There's been so much engagement with that that I had to hurry up and order some more pins um, because we ran out. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, but yeah, no, we've had we've had some good good feedback from students as well as participation in the programming that we're doing.
0: So speaking of that, the Rainbow Coalition roundtable was last week. The first roundtable that you're doing as part of your programming series. And, and a rock star producer stayed up past her bedtime, since she has to be on the air at 5 a.m. typically. Uh, she stayed up to record all of the audio of that panel discussion. So that complete audio will be available online, and we'll post a link to it. But in the interim, we thought it, we could highlight some of the wisdom imparted by the participants for those of you, our listeners, who weren't able to attend that event. Right.
1: It sounds like an excellent idea to me. I was really pleased with the outcome of that event. We had over 100 people in the galleries. For it, and uh, maybe we'll circle back around to some other upcoming events related to this. But let's go ahead and and start with Stan McKinney, who was a rank and file member of the Illinois Black Panther Party from 1969 to 1978 and continues to work in the community today in the spirit of the Black Panther Party.
2: I joined the Black Panther Party in January of 1969. Um, And the motivating force for me joining the Black Panther Party, and I spoke with some of the students earlier today, is that the conditions that existed in the community uh, on the west side of Chicago, uh, I think, precipitated that. Uh, Some people, we say, join the party uh, because of different reasons. Aspiration, inspiration, desperation. Well, I guess you could say mine was desperation the conditions that existed in the black community on the west side at that time in the 60s is that you know if you were stopped if you're african-american and you're stopped by police uh they would jump out on you and back then we used to call them pigs the pigs rode six deep three in the front seat Uh, they got the computers and all that stuff now but back then it was three in the front seat three in the back they would jump out, and they would commence to whooping you or either take all the bullets out of the gun and but one, and they spin it, the barrel, they call it spin the barrel, and they click, 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 and that's how they got their joy. Amongst other things, if you were taken in to the police station for minor offense, traffic, anything, you were tortured. Those same conditions exist today. Those, those same exact conditions exist today. There's a, an institution on the west side of Chicago called Holman Square. And Holman Square is an old building that was beared, built by Sears and Roebuck. And we come to find out that uh, a lot of African-American youth are being uh, picked up in their communities, taken to this building, and the same tactics that, are used, that were used at Guantanamo Bay, waterboarding, uh, Various torture tactics are being done right to this day. There's, there's been many demonstrations and movements in terms of that. But, it's, it, you know, it's really, I mean, to be in this room and see as many people to come out um, under the auspices of the Rainbow Coalition. And it's, it was a very fine concept. And, and we would not be here. Uh, none of the panelists would be here were it not for the... Uh, vision of chairman fred hampton senior um he is the one that and and we make no distinction about that clearly that had the vision to put this coalition together and some people say well the panthers were under a lot of um heat we were Uh, we sustained there was 38 panthers that were killed during the uh, from the inception of the organization, we were taken off the street, locked up, and as a matter of fact, there's still party members uh, that are s- serving time. There's one brother, uh, Jerry Odingo, who's serving 150 years. Okay, he was selling papers in front of our office on the west side of Chicago, and the, the FBI pulled up and hung a case on him. And he's you can Google him right now. He's he's serving 150 years, and we've been fighting that so. those same conditions really exist today when you look at the shooting of Laquan McDonald and the many African-Americans throughout this country when Huey Newton and Bobby Siltz got together they were law students and came up with the concept to develop the Black Panther Party they came up with what was called the 10-point platform and that platform basically spoke to uh, the oppressive conditions that people were subjected to in this country and still are. So, when we, one of the uh, points, the 10 points, uh, number seven, spoke to police brutality. We want an end to police brutality and murder of black people in particular and all oppressed people across the world. And that applies today, it still exists, that we're still dealing with police brutality. We're still dealing with the madness of a war mangler who's, uh, who's in office today.
0: What resonates with me is Stan's all-too-true statement that the same conditions exist today. He mentioned and Square in Chicago, but as we know too well, the issue of police brutality and violence extends far beyond. How many people today are moved to action, not through aspiration or inspiration, but as Stan was back then, through desperation?
1: Oh, it's a good question, Melissa, and I, I think that uh, all of the, the voices that we had at the, at the panel uh, last week were... The, the experiences that they shared and their perspectives were just, I think, so important for us as audience members to hear. And so I'm glad we're able to, to share this in the podcast. Um, and so with that, I think we should turn to another voice, Michael James, who was another member of our panel. He's an activist and photographer and writer and actor who founded Rising Up Angry.
3: I intended to go in the Marine Corps, um, and I had signed up in the Platoon Leader Corps, and... Uh, a group of uh, scraggly, kind of hippie uh, beatnik types came through on the San Francisco to Moscow Peace March, and that turned me around a whole lot about war and bombs and those kind of things. I got a fellowship to, in the summer of 64, I worked in Uptown, which is where the Joint Community Union would be and where the Young Patriots came out of. It uh, used to be mostly southern white. Uh, it's pretty mixed in a lot of ways. It's a rough edge neighborhood. Um, And uh, I worked there in the summer, and then I went off to Berkeley. And at Berkeley, I was going to study sociology. I was going to be a sociologist instead of a minister. And uh, I uh, found a piece of paper on the ground. Mind you, the day I walked onto the campus, there was a police car with a guy named Jack Weinberg, and it's surrounded by students. Uh, The university had said that you couldn't uh, advocate for off-campus events, and most of the, a lot of people had come back from working in uh, Mississippi summer 64, where there was a lot of voter registration. So it was really the wrong time for the administration to try to, try to clamp down on the uh, growing student activism. Um, I was uh, a participant in the free speech movement and uh, ended up getting arrested and hauled off to Santa Rita. But uh, during sitting around that police car, I found a piece of paper on the ground, and it said, build the interracial movement of the poor. And I was trying to figure out how you, through in sociology and conflict theory, how you took people who had disagreements and brought them together. Um, so I kind of, this captured my attention and my imagination. I wrote to SDS and said, hey, I want to be a part of this. What do I do? And they wrote back, well, you got to do it. And um, uh, some, some people came through town uh, from the organization, and a group of us ended up going into West Oakland, uh, which is where the Panthers came out of. Um, this was in the summer of 65, uh, the, uh, the war in Vietnam was escalating and there was an awful lot of attention uh, to trying to stop the troop trains that were bringing these young guys with their heads shaved to ship them off to Vietnam. And I remember uh, uh, we sort of stuck it out for a while but the, the action was not down in our neighborhood. I ended up um, running it to a guy named Stokely Carmichael. Some of you may know him. He was from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which was the really cutting-edge, forefront black organization around voter registration and working in the South. And um, Stokely, whose name is, how do you say it, Cicoture? Is it? Cicoture. He, uh <clears throat> I was at the Fillmore Auditorium at a benefit with uh, the Grateful Dead and the— Quicksilver to messenger service and the Jefferson Airplane and people like that and I remember talking to Stokely That's all I really remember saying I was going to go off and either work in Newark with a guy named Tom Hayden uh, or in which was in a black neighborhood or uh, With Rennie Davis in a white neighborhood in Chicago and Stokely said work with white people We have a lot going on in the black community. We need a lot more in the white community So I went off to Chicago uh, <clears throat> I met young guys like Kai Thurman, his brother, uh, a lot of people. We had an organization that had already started uh, that was quite formidable. It uh, uh, it had a, uh, we had regular meetings, it had a, a welfare unit, it had a legal operation. We did uh, theater uh, that acted out, you know, the evil landlord discriminating against the tenants. Uh, and... Uh, we had a march on the Somerdale Police Station. I think you were on that. And uh, when that ended in 68, uh, before the Democratic Convention, Join kind of came to an end. Um, out of join came the Goodfellows, which became the Young Patriots. I went off and started a group called Rising Up Angry. And the way I got the name, I'll confess, we were of altered state. Um, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, uh, having a meeting about organizing and taking what we had done in Uptown and taking that to other Midwestern cities. And we were having this meeting, and we went into Yellow Springs to watch this movie called Wild in the Streets, made by the same people who made the FBI series. And um, in that movie, anyone over 30 was a sellout. Uh, but there was a song that went with it. It was "There's a new sun rising up angry in the sky. Uh, Max Frost and the Troopers. And so that's where we got the name. And there was a lot of activity going on in Chicago, um, in a lot of neighborhoods. There was the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, the Black Panther Party had started, the Young Lords had started, the Young Patriots were coming on, there were other groups, and um, we... uh, We, When we started Rising Up Angry, we started it as a paper to kind of educate, to liberate, and to build the organization. So we ran stories on the Panthers. We ran stories on the Young Lords. We ran stuff about Vietnam. Um, We ran stuff about women. And let me say that in all of these organizations that you see up here, there were really strong and powerful women who were members of that organization. And I know you're trying to get some for your next event. But it isn't like it was a guy thing. Not that there weren't issues of sexism and all that going on. But, uh, you know, we were all challenged and we all grew at that time. Uh, Rising Up Angry lasted for a number of years. We had a free people's health center. We had that newspaper. We uh, got to work with guys who we met in the brig up at Great Lakes Naval Training Center. No, at Glenville Naval Air Station. Um, We did a lot of anti-war work at a legal program. Um, and we were in a lot of different neighborhoods. We weren't just in one place. And in all those places that we worked, uh, in Chicago, as racist as Chicago has a rep for being and in many ways is, there are also a lot of places in the city where there's a lot of crossover. You have black Polish people. You have Polish Puerto Rican people. You have hillbillies mixed with all kinds of people. I mean, it's really... uh, it's, it's kind of wonderful in a lot of ways that people break down these lines. Um, I, um, Angry ended in uh, 75, 76, and I was teaching at Columbia College. And uh, I had uh, been kind of attracted to alternative communities like the, the Hutterites and the, uh, the Amana colonies out in Iowa and New Harmony, Indiana. And I started thinking about ways to uh, how we developed an economy. If you read revolutionary theory, even read Chairman Mao Zedong, he talked about the need for an economy to provide jobs and, you know, commerce, et cetera. So I ended up going on to, into the restaurant business, which was a political restaurant. It's still there. I don't have, I only have a minority interest now. But um, I uh, I ended up teaching at Columbia College, I was, uh, I, and now I teach a little bit at DePaul. I want to say one thing in case I forget to say it later. Um, the Rainbow Coalition, um, really as small as it, as it is, and it was, uh, was very inspirational. And in Chicago, there, were, there was a tradition of organizing. Some of you know about Saul Alinsky, uh, certainly labor movements and all that. Um, Chicago is, a, is an interesting town. And let me see where I'm going with that, but uh, what I wanted to say was that uh, I think that, and what I tell people a lot, that someday, white people, the best thing that can happen to white people, or so-called white people, raises a bigger question, I think. But the best thing that white people can hope for is that someday they will be viewed in the world community as a minority that worked for the good of the whole. And I would say that for the United States, the best thing that we can hope for is that we are a nation viewed among other nations as a nation that works for the good of the overall community. Now, you all know we have a long way to go for that. So as much as we're gonna talk about the history and the past and the the kind of organizing in the neighborhoods, the day-to-day contact, talking to people, bringing them through their racism, through their sexism, through their whatever it is, you know, um, now is the time. And, and it's not gonna be us, it's gonna be mostly you. Uh, you and people like you everywhere, and people much more diverse in many ways. Um, but if the future of humanity and what goes on in this planet really depends on how we can bring people together and stand up to the, uh, the fascist pigs, as we used to call them.
1: It is what it is.
0: As Michael said, we really must become a nation that works for the good of the overall community.
1: Absolutely, Melissa. And and with that, I think we should turn to Antonio Lopez, who's a writer, educator, and historian who works on environmental justice. And for the panel, he was functioning as a spokesperson for the Young Lords organization. Not involved in the organization itself, Antonio wrote his dissertation on the Rainbow Coalition and speaks on behalf of the Young Lords when their leader, Chacha Jimenez, cannot be present. Antonio began by discussing the importance of the experiences of colonization and empire on Puerto Rico, which you can listen to in the entire audio, and the role it played on the migration of many Puerto Rican families to Chicago.
4: By the time in the late 50s, and again, you're thinking about a city that, again, experienced massive deindustrialization, the loss of jobs, the loss of economic opportunity, um, and then then all of the, um, you know, the, the white ethnic racism that one can imagine um, there and, and out of that emerged the Young Lords, which at that time was actually a street organization. It had started actually out as a, as a, basically, if you were a, a, a young person in Puerto Rican, you were fighting Italian dudes coming home from school. You were fighting, you know, you had to protect yourself uh, in the neighborhoods there in Chicago, uh, which I still had to do in the 90s. Um, and uh, um, that's how the Young Lords started. As a, as a way for uh, young people there, young Puerto Ricans there in Lincoln Park to come together uh, and it emerged. And, and Chacha was a young man at that time and had become involved in that and the Young Lords organization. However, going through the 60s, you know, this dynamic, dynamic political period. Again, we're just a couple hours away from, I don't think it's an overstatement to say Chicago really is one of the most political places on the, on the yes. face of the planet. <laughs> Literally on the face of the planet. There's a reason that the labor movement started there. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that you had the largest Black Panther Party there. Mm-hmm. The reason that you know uh, all of these organizations. I mean, Chicago was a was a is a dynamic uh, political location. Uh, and, and I'm a Chicago guy. I'm just I'm not trying to overstate that, but I really believe that. And um and and at that time, um, the Young Lords organization was you know starting to get politicized, but something happened that kind of switched the uh, kind of changed things. One, you had you had all this urban removal programs. The idea there was that Lincoln Park would be the first inner city suburb, right? That was the idea, and mm-hmm. and so you had problems because you had all this, this working class poor people there that you had to remove, basically. Whites too. Yeah, yeah and a we lot of yeah.
3: we fighting each other.
4: Yeah, and, uh, and and so the Lincoln Park was really, I mean, you want to call it like kind of ground zero or a really intense place where urban removal uh was was targeted because of its proximity to the, the business, dist- the, the the business district the central business district, the lakefront, all these kinds of things. And so you had that going on. Um, you had these ethnic issues going on, you know, these ethnic conflicts going on. The young lords is coming up in that. And then you have this really powerful uh uh political scene in Chicago that's happening. And uh but something actually, you know, this this, this relation I want to get to the relationship with the Black Panther Party and the Young Lord uh and the Rainbow Coalition, but really when I've talked to, Ch- to Ch- Chacha, he was doing a lot of work, but what flipped the switch and really politicized the Young Lords organization was the police murder of a young lord named Manuel Ramos. Yeah. And Manuel Ramos was killed on May 4th, 1969. An off-duty police officer was um, uh, just at his home, and there was a party, and some guys were just hanging out in the front door, and the, the off-duty police officer off-duty, his name was James Lamb, Walked up to young know, He was drunk. He was drunk, and walked up and he shot uh, Manuel Ramos in the eye. He basically killed. He shot him in the in the face, and killed Manuel Ramos and shot another young lord. And Chacha was having kind of a hard time politicizing people and getting things going at that time. And the police murder. This was a murder of of a young lord. Again, you got to remember, these are young people, young people that were doing all this work, like yourselves, like your ages and imagine a police officer shooting your best, one of your best friends, one of your best people, uh, cold bloodedly, and that right there really flipped the switch on the Young Lords organization, the murder of, of, and if you look at the historical record after that, Mm -hmm. you know, you see all these examples of people coming together, the original Rainbow Coalition, marches on behalf of Manuel Ramos, the takeover of the McCormick Theological Seminary, You know, on and on and on. And one could go on and that's... I call it the rainbow summer because that summer of 1969 was hot. I mean, I don't know, you know. yes. Yeah, that was hot, right? And um, and so uh, I think you would point to that. Uh, I want to point, if I have time, just for one more last little thing, and I'm sure we can get more into it. Um, But... um, uh, one of the questions that I thought I had to think about was, you know, well, man, why did why was it the young, there was a lot, you know, Chicago was a lot of organizations, but why was it that the young lords and the young patriots were the ones that just, like, grabbed, you know, caught on rather quickly with the Black Panther Party? Like, how did that happen? And again, uh, it wasn't, I think it does a disservice not only to the young lords and the young patriots, but also also to the Black Panther Party um, if you try to make it seem like people got indoctrinated or people were were manipulated into this, like, you know, militant politics. The Black Panther Party had a recognition of self-determination. Yes. That, that, that concept of solidarity, right? How do you build solidarity but respect and recognize self-determination was the genius of the Black Panther Party and its leadership, something that we still don't get right today. Yep. We make many, many mistakes over I see it in my work all the time. Mm-hmm. We still don't get that contradiction right today. And was something that, in the respect for self-determination, it was a recognition that people in Puerto Rico, what they had experienced, their lived experiences of migration, of being racialized, of being beaten in Lincoln Park, of dealing with poverty in uptown, dealing with all the things that people were dealing with in uptown. The kitchenettes, you know, the roaches, the rats, the poverty, the homelessness, right? The humiliations that people were visited upon on a daily, day-to-day basis. They didn't need to be convinced that hard that self of what the Black Panther Party was talking about. They were readily able to grasp that. Now, what they did, there was some work that had to be done, was how we get beyond this race thing, right? And the Black Panther Party, the genius of the Black Panther Party in shaping that was amazing. And But what I wanted to say was that the reason why this is important is because we can't forget that many people back then were really against, there was actually not a lot of people that had a lot of confidence in this type of coalition building. Mm -hmm. There were people that were actually saying, no, we got to be racially separate, or there was a lot of liberalism going on, right? That was, uh, you know, this was hard work to try to put together this kind of original rainbow coalition vision that recognized solidarity and self-determination. And the reason why it was profound to me was because it actually represented a reconnection with what was going on in the, in the world globally, with the revolutionary movements in the, in, around the world who had long before here in the United States had solved that issue of self-determination and solidarity. Going back to the Bandung Conference, going back to the Tri-Continental Conferences, the Cuban Revolution, Ghana, right? The Black Panther Party represented a reconnection. It reconnected the, the, the US revolutionaries back with the brothers and sisters around the world And the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago, again, Chicago is a political place. It represented kind of a reconnection of that, and that's why it was so threatening.
0: Claire, from where you were situated during the program, did you sense a shift in the room's energy as Antonio connected the efforts of 1969 and, and the era to what is needed of our young people today, including those Augustana students who were present? I mean, talk about your connection here and what he was saying to your museum's mission.
1: No, absolutely. I, I I do think that there was a lot of a lot of energy in the room and the galleries that night. People thinking about this particular moment and how can their role, how, what role can they play here, um, in in this moment in our community, in their own communities, in the Augustana community. And I think that the. The wisdom that was imparted by our panelists helped helped all of the young people, whether they were Augustana students or old people. You know, those of us more seasoned seasoned members of the community uh, think about how do we engage in the in the world around us. And um, you know, those are the moments that I I think are important for the art the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art to facilitate. I think that um, one of the roles of the museum is to think about art and and our gallery spaces as a way into grappling with contemporary issues and I I really can't think of a better way to have done it. You had yet another participant to this program. Yes Uh, which brings us to the last member of the panel but not least Hi Thurman who's the current chairman of the reboot of the Young Patriots and member of the Young Patriots when it was part of the Rainbow Coalition.
5: I came there when I was 17 years old uh trying to escape the poverty of a small town in Tennessee which was being, uh, uh, you know, mechanized and, and jobs were, there were no jobs there. I started working in the field when I was about three years old, you know, so are there are a lot, and I'm, and I'm not you know, I'm not saying that for any sympathy, but that is actually you, if you looked at those times, you'd see a lot of families out there working in the in the fields just trying to survive Uh, We would pool our money at the end of the day, and uh, that's how we would eat. Uh, So we were very poor. Uh, So when it came time to go to Chicago, I decided, well, I'm gone. You know, and I was 17 at that time, and I went into the uptown community, and I thought, well, maybe this is a chance. But, you know, I was there probably less than two weeks, and I got stopped by two cops. And uh, once they found out I had a southern accent, uh, and I'll get graphic here. We're all adults. Um, they said, oh, no, not another fucking hillbilly. I said, why don't you go home and fuck your mom or your dog or your pig? You know, whatever you guys fuck down there, just just get out of Chicago. And that was their thinking. That's how they treated us. You know, after they proceeded to push me out of the car and kick me a few times. But, you know, it's just that's, that's the way they were in Chicago and um, it wasn't unusual for them to just come down the street and just pick somebody and start beating on them. Uh, so there was a, Mike had mentioned a march on the police station, um, on the Somerdale police station. Now, if you look it up, it's called the Great Somerdale Scandal in 1959, where this police station was actually busted uh, for stolen goods, and they, or they would go and they'd actually. The usual uh, yeah, <laughs> they uh, uh they would get these burglars and make them work for them. So if somebody had, a uh, you know, a, a nice little cook out, they'd have to have somebody go steal the meat for them. You know, if they had some uh, occasion coming up, they'd have them go out and steal uh, this stuff for them, break into these businesses, uh, because if they didn't, they would be threatened, you know, they'd go to jail. And they would do the same thing with a lot of the, the people in the neighborhood, these uh. These young guys that have trumped up charges on them, they'd say, well, we're not gonna, uh, we're not gonna uh, serve this on you, but this is what you gotta do. Um, and so it was just terrible. Uh, the living conditions were terrible. So there was a group of, of guys that got together, and they were in, actually in a gang at first, um, called the Peacemakers. And, uh, but some of them got associated with join and became the Goodfellas. And join actually uh, taught a lot of organizing and political ideology to a lot of people. And so what actually came out of that, this group and Mike uh, actually ran Eldridge Cleaver and Peggy Terry, who was a a poor welfare mother for president and vice president of the United States. And of course, 1968. And, and, you know, if you remember, Eldridge Cleaver was for the Black Panther Party. And they were running against uh, George Wallace because of his racist views. And I think that was one of the, the – I, I think that sparked something in Chicago at that time that you would see uh, a, a black man with the Black Panthers, and you see a, a poor uh, a welfare mother running together against racism. And because Chicago was one of the most segregated cities in the in the world, actually, I would say, Mayor Daley, he, he actually designed they designed the city that way. But anyway, um, a, as time went on, the um, the good fellows, um, the the got drafted. A lot of them got drafted. A lot of them left town because of you know police brutality uh, and. Uh, That left a few people, a few guys around, and so we we actually, we started the Young Patriots, and uh, we were recognized by uh, the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords uh, who saw that our struggles in Uptown were uh, pretty much similar to their struggles, uh, that we were fighting against racism, and, but one thing that was different, we wore the Confederate flag. And uh, that was kind of unheard of, you know, with working in a coalition of, with the blacks people. And uh, what we would do is we would take that flag, uh, wear it on our, our uh, jackets sometime, and we'd go into the bars and talk to people about it. Um, but of course, we were growing at the same time also. It wasn't that we were these great ideology organizers. You know, we came from a very racist background. We came from a a state, and I came from a state that's, you know, very big in uh, white supremacy. And uh, so we had a lot to overcome. But with people like, uh, you know, the the Joint Community Union and uh, uh, the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, you know, they they worked with us, actually, and they taught us a lot. we were political to begin with because of a lot of uh, movements that were in the South. Uh, we had, a lot of people had, had been in the, uh, the coal mine, uh, coal mine union, uh, you know, the uh, textiles, agriculture, uh, you know, and John Brown, they knew who John Brown was, and others, so, um, it was, we were kind of ripe for organizing, but we were just a group of kids. We were like, you know, I was 17, 18 at the time.
0: I like how High recognized how much he and others had to overcome and have overcome, and yet we see how very far we still have to go. Really, what a special opportunity for this group to speak with our community members, both young and old, or, or seasoned. Yes, as we said. seasoned,
1: seasoned <laughs> as we as we shall say, and and that's just a small portion of the panel's conversation that evening. I mean, we we just wanted to give you listeners sort of a sense of of what the the topics, what topics were covered, and how the the different perspectives of the different organizations came together and and worked in the Rainbow Coalition and why that Rainbow Coalition was so important. How it's important to think about coalition politics today. How do we create coalition politics in our own communities? And I really encourage you to listen to the entire panel. Other highlights include advice from the panelists on what you can do in your own community to face white supremacy. And in that light, I thought it would be good to close out today's episode with the words of Stan McKinney, our first speaker and former member of the Illinois Black Panther Party.
2: We had a slogan a slogan that we always said, youth make the revolution. You you, you you, have to get involved and get in where you fit in. I mean, if you have my, my, my belief and my issue was stopping them pigs on the west side of Chicago from stomping a mud hole in my butt. I became, I started reading at, uh, at a young age, Lenin, Marx, S- do your research. Really, I, I tell young people, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Okay, one of the things, one of the things, if you notice, uh, from what you, you're hearing constantly, the Black Panther Party already established a temper plate in terms of organizing bringing people together do research if you do your research you'll come up you'll come up with concrete concrete solutions in terms of tactically which way you want to go but you got to do your research i mean after a certain point i knew that the black panther because there was a period before we had to go through political education so there was a period a 6 month period of political education before you could actually be a party member. So putting up with that, and then, you know, I developed that voracious appetite for reading, learning, and before you know it, I was in there and went everywhere.
0: Well, get in where you fit in and do your research. I love that. (laughs) A big thanks to Claire, our our interviewee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also to Brian Lovato, who was the moderator of that panel discussion. Thanks to Michael James, Antonio Lopez, Stan McKinney, and High Thurman for being part of the Rainbow Coalition panel. I am thrilled by its success in engaging over 100 community members in this thoughtful reflection and conversation at the event. And know that the upcoming Uh, programs around this exhibition will continue the dialogue and move our community ever forward, we hope. Always the hope. So um, the next opportunity, Claire, check me on this. It's going to be a second conversation. This one is entitled Women and the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords, and it will be on Thursday, September 28th at 2 p.m.
1: Yep, and it will likely be in the galleries, but I would say keep an eye on Augustana Teaching Museum of Art Social Media for confirmation of that. Sounds good. And then one more time, don't forget that you
0: can listen to the complete audio from the first event online. Just follow the link on our website.
1: Thanks, Melissa. And another reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, and you can listen to the episodes on WVIK's website. There's an email on the website in case you'd like to contact us. And don't forget that we include additional information and materials on our Facebook page that relate to the episodes. So if you're interested in digging deeper, be sure to follow us.
0: As always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WVIK for your continued support of this project. Remember that this podcast only exists because of listener support. Be sure to go to wvik.org and click the donate button. A special thanks to our producer, Lacey Scarmana, who is the foundation of this podcast. And this podcast would still be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Pedersen Pate's design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. Last but not least, thank you to you, all of our listeners. Until next time. Until next time.